Welcome to A New Republic, An Oral History of the Indian Constitution, Episode 4, Representation. Welcome back. Now, in the last episode, we discussed the uh, social and political context in which the Indian Councils Act of 1909 was drawn up. Today, we discuss the legislative substance of this Act of Parliament. Now, I hope you enjoyed the last episode because all the sexy bits in the story came in that episode. This episode is full of the boring legislative bits. So why don't you settle down somewhere comfortable, make yourself a cup of tea and prepare to not be entertained. Let's recap the story so far very briefly. We're standing at the early years of the 20th century. There's a liberal government in power in Britain and they've appointed John Morley, a liberal politician, as the Secretary of State for India. In India, meanwhile, the Viceroy is a conservative politician called Lord Minto. Both these men are now trying to work together to create a set of reforms that will satisfy the liberal government in Britain and a rising nationalist movement in India. In Britain, the liberals want to give greater self-governance opportunities to the Indians. Remember, the liberals do frown upon the idea of empire. In India, meanwhile, the moderates, especially in the Indian National Congress, seek greater role for Indians in their own political lives. And increasingly, there is an extremist movement that is trying to unsettle both the British and the moderate political leadership in India. It is in this environment that one liberal politician and one conservative politician is trying to find middle ground. Now, before we jump into the legislative details, we need to step back just a little bit and understand how the government is structured in India at this point, early in the 20th century. Now, understanding this can be a little harder than it looks. This is because there are several legislative bodies spread out in many different places. And many of the sources I looked at, especially books and websites, seem to make several errors. There were numerous errors of nomenclature. And this is because some of these bodies have extremely confusing names and extremely confusing institutional histories. For instance, take the case of the governor of Madras presidency. From 1640 to 1684, the British representative who oversaw Madras was called the agent, but also the governor. From 1684 to 1746, he was called the president. And then for three years, Madras was ruled by the governors of the French East India Company, after which it reverted to British rule under presidents. And then from 1785, the title was renamed to governor. And so it stayed till independence when Madras was basically taken over by MGR. Also, do keep in mind that for the purposes of this podcast, I've kind of focused only on legislative landmarks after the revolt of 1857. In fact, there were several acts of parliament before that that sought to fine-tune the East India Company's administration. And from my reading, I think this was in order to improve the system of checks and balances in India. Therefore, if you want a much uh, fuller picture of the evolution of India's governmental structure, do go back and read those documents and parliamentary acts. So all said and done, what does the British Raj administration look like in India in 1905? Now, there are three groups of uh, legislative bodies. There's a group of bodies in the UK. There's a central or a federal group of bodies in Calcutta, the capital. And there are provincial uh, legislative bodies scattered all over the country. Now, in London, the administration is headed by a Secretary of State for India, who is assisted by a large bureaucracy called India House. 
The Secretary of State is also advised and assisted by a group of elders called the Council of India. This is largely a group of people with long India experience, people like ex-viceroys, for instance. This Council of India was quite influential, but not powerful. This is because the Secretary of State was ultimately answerable only to the Parliament. Meanwhile, in India, in Calcutta, you had a federal central legislative structure arranged in three tiers. At the top, you had the Viceroy or the Governor General. At level two, you had an executive council that kind of functioned like the Viceroy's cabinet of ministers with portfolios. And finally, you had a legislative council that was called either the Central Legislative Council and some people called it the Imperial Legislative Council. Either ways, this legislative council was the weakest of the three bodies. It consisted of both Indians and Europeans. It could discuss matters of policy. It could recommend things to the Governor General or the Executive Council. But essentially, it had no power because whatever it decided could be vetoed by the Governor General or by the Cabinet. Similarly, at the provincial level, this three-tier structure was replicated. You had a Governor of Madras, for instance, who had an Executive Council um, or a Cabinet which in turn sat on top of a provincial legislative council. And if you kind of look closely, you can already notice here the outlines of a federal and state structure with advisory bodies. All of this might look very sophisticated for a colonial possession, but there are a couple of things about this political structure that made the Indians extremely upset. The first was that Indians were not allowed into any of the really powerful legislative bodies. So for instance, there were no Indians in the Council of India in London. There were no Indians in the Executive Council or Cabinet in Calcutta. And there were no Indians allowed into the Executive Council or Cabinet at the provincial levels. The British were basically telling Indians, you could be a part of any legislative body as long as it was entirely powerless. The other problem was that almost all the members of all the legislative bodies were either selected or nominated. There was practically no elections for any positions of power across the entire country. Here I'd like to pause a while to just make one point. It's easy to think, listening to the narrative I just told you, and when you read the history books and um, textbooks, that every single senior position in India's bureaucracy was reserved for British officers. This is actually quite untrue. Indians were free to join the Indian civil services, and many of them routinely rose to extremely high positions especially within, say, the judicial or the revenue systems. For instance, in 1905, one Satyendra Prasanno Sinha was posted as the Advocate General of Bengal. And this was true not just in India. Between 1892 and 1895, Dadabhai Navroji, one of the founders of the Indian National Congress and someone called the Grand Old Man of India, was uh, the House of Commons Member of Parliament for Central Finsbury Constituency in London which is quite close to where I live. And to this day, there is a road in the Finsbury area called uh, Navroji Road. And of course, this is in addition to a long list of Indians who'd anyways been part of uh, provincial and central legislative councils, such as uh, Firosha Mehta or Gopal Krishna Gokhale. Yet true political power seemed just beyond the reach of most Indians. And this is what drove many of them up the wall. Therefore, it is these two great shortcomings, one of uh, genuine political power and the other one of uh, a lack of true representation that Morley and Minto were trying to rectify 
through the Indian Councils Act of 1909. So how did these men approach these problems? Now, as far as elections are concerned, Morley, Minto, and most of the British administration were petrified of transplanting parliamentary democracy into India. This was not because they didn't believe in the parliamentary system. Of course not. After all, this was the system in the UK and a system they were very proud of. No, their problem was they believed that Indians were simply not politically sophisticated enough to function within a parliamentary democratic system. Now, if you look through the letters of this period and uh, a lot of the books and historical writings, what you notice is how this genuine liberal need to extend self-governance keeps running against this kind of casual racism. Minto, in particular, is a man of many prejudices. He reserves particular animosity for Bengalis, and I suppose this is because of, um, of his staying in Calcutta and a case of familiarity breeding contempt. Because once, while referring to the trouble he has been having with extremist Bengali leaders, he writes in a letter to Morley, The loudness of Bengali eloquence, I am afraid, has drowned the chance of any more sober exposition of the interests of the people of India. And this is not unique to Minto. Lord Curzon, the viceroy before him, shares much the same opinion. In 1908, while debate is still going on about this piece of legislation, he writes to Minto about an incurable vice of the Bengali man, namely, and I quote, the faculty of rolling out yards and yards of frothy declaration about subjects which he has imperfectly considered or which he does not even fully understand. So the idea of a true parliamentary democracy in India was immediately out of the question. On the other issue, that of Indians in executive councils, there appears to have been much greater divergence in the thinking of both Morley and Minto. Minto seems very wary of letting any Indians into the Executive Council for a couple of reasons. The most important one, he says, is that the Council has access to important information such as state secrets and intelligence reports. And he thinks it is unwise to let a native read these reports because who knows, he might later run away and tell the Congress leaders that some of them are being targeted. Morley, on the other hand, is much more trusting and much more constructive about this. In fact, he decides to play a little piece of emotional blackmail with Minto. He decides, quite proactively, that he was open to uh, including not one, but two Indians into this group of elders, the Council of India in London, who are supposed to advise him. Because of this, Minto has no option but to consider including at least one Indian into his executive uh, council in Calcutta. Compared to some of the complex modern politics that take place in our parliaments today, a lot of these reforms might seem plain and quite commonplace, but in fact, they were subject to the most strenuous discussion in London and in Calcutta. Experts kept sailing back and forth and they'd send multiple copies and it just took several years to complete. And in my estimate, if Minto was at least as enthusiastic as Morley about genuine reform, the Indian Councils Act could have been passed a full 24 months in advance of when it actually got completed which was in the May of 1909. So what does the act entail and what reforms did it bring? For the purpose of our story, what I'm going to do is focus on just the two pieces of reform that we are worried about the most. The first is better representation and the second one is inclusion in uh, the real bodies of power. Now, as far as representation is concerned, the Indian Councils Act improves things by expanding the membership of the central and provincial legislative councils, which is the third tier. 
In Calcutta, the Central Legislative Council was expanded to 60 from 16. In the major provinces, this was expanded to 50 and in the minor ones to 30. And in addition to expanding these councils, the reforms also introduced the idea of elections for the first time in India. However, these were indirect elections. So uh, the process was a little complex and let me try to explain this to you without confusing the heck out of everybody. Let us look at the uh, Central Legislative Council in Calcutta. Now, out of this new sanctioned strength of 60 members, a minority of 27 would be filled through the process of indirect elections. The remainder was set aside for officials and members nominated either by the Governor General in Calcutta or by the Secretary of State for India in London. These 27 elected seats were further split into constituencies. 13 would be elected by members of the Provincial Legislative Councils. Six would be elected by landholders in the provinces. Muslims in the five provinces would elect five members. One seat would alternate between Muslim landholders of UP and Bengal. And the final two members would be elected by the Chambers of Commerce of Calcutta and Bombay. Now, the Indian Councils Act of 1909 has often been held up as the beginning of representational government in India. This is true. But we should also remember that the electoral system it introduces was by no means ideal. It had several flaws and inconsistencies. First of all, not everybody got the vote. The vote was generally given only to the rich and the elite. So people like graduates, traders, landowners, taxpayers and so on. But the far greater inconsistency, in my view, is the way in which it treats Muslims and non-Muslims in drastically different ways. And I think the best way to uh, explain this is to compare the voting experience of an average Hindu voter in, say, Bombay and a Muslim voter from Punjab. Now, the Hindu voter in Bombay would only be able to vote for members of his municipality or local board. These municipality and local board members would then vote to choose the members of the provincial legislative councils of Bombay. The provincial legislative councillors in Bombay would then vote to select their representatives to the central legislative council in Calcutta. The voting experience of the Muslim from Punjab is drastically different. He can not only elect indirect representatives like the guy in Bombay, but also thanks to the Muslim quota, elect direct representatives to the Central Legislative Council in Calcutta. Therefore, while the Hindu in Bombay was depending on a representative's representative's representative to represent him in uh, the capital, the Muslim would have access to more than one representative. And this Muslim quota would only help to completely destroy the relationship between uh, the Hindu and Muslim leaders in, uh, in India. In fact, by now you could say that the British were truly trying to uh, drive in a wedge between both communities even deeper. And what about the other major issue? The fact that Indians were not let into positions of power. This is what the Indian Councils Act of 1909 does. The Council of India in London will now include two Indians. The Executive Council or Cabinet in Calcutta will include one Indian and so will the Executive Councils in the major and minor provinces. So you could say that Morley's tactics worked. Unfortunately, as you might expect, the first two Indians chosen to Morley's Council of India in London were one Hindu and one Muslim. And from what I understand from the records, 
these two individuals were rarely in agreement. In the end, by trying to straddle the liberal need to let go with the conservative need to keep control, it ended up making nobody particularly happy. Minto later writes in a letter to Morley, the extremists will certainly not be satisfied, the moderates may not make themselves heard, and British feeling in India generally will not, I am afraid, evince any great cordiality towards political advance. However, again, whatever happens, I feel pleased. And thus, a protracted series of discussions and debates ends in kind of a damp squib. But before I end this podcast, I'd like to make a brief digression. The first Indian ever to be admitted into Minto's cabinet of ministers was our old friend Satyendra Prasanno Sinha. I am both fascinated and a little embarrassed to admit that I'd never heard of Sinha before researching for this podcast. Sinha was knighted eventually after becoming an, a cabinet minister and later he becomes the first Indian member of the House of Lords. And this is achieved when, in February 1919, S.P. Sinha was made the first Baron of Raipur. Yes, the first Baron of Raipur. Mind you, this was a hereditary peerage, which means it runs in the family and it runs in the family to this day. So today, a 46-year-old computer specialist, the Honourable Arup Kumar Sinha, is the sixth Baron of Raipur. The Sinha family, all of whom live in England right now, I believe, are the only Indian family ever to be elevated to royalty in England. In fact, I'm not sure about this, but they might be the only non-white family ever to be elevated to royalty. So if you're from Raipur and you're kind of unhappy with the state of affairs, why not try writing a letter to your baron here in London? Anyway, so back to the boring business. The Indian Councils Act of 1909 was the last major piece of legislation to be passed before the First World War. So in the next episode, we look at a number of things. We look at the state of affairs in India and in Britain during the closing years of that terrible conflict. We'll see how a new system of administration called the diarchy was introduced. And this diarchy has huge implications for Indian uh, constitutional legislation later. And once again, like Morley and Minto, we'll talk about two reformers working in tandem, Edwin Samuel Montague and Lord Chelmsford. See you then.